The Gog-Magog War is one of the most significant events in all of eschatology. It happens in the last days when a coalition of nations come against Israel for the purpose of taking plunder and destroying them. And then God comes down and thoroughly defeats them so that the nations in Israel will know who he is. But why does this happen? And more importantly, when does it happen in the end times chronology? We'll talk about it on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, but we are taking a quick detour from our verse-by-verse study in order to examine the aforementioned Gog-Magog war, which is outlined and actually gone into in depth in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. So why are we taking this detour? Well, again, as I said, this is, again, one of the most significant and well-known events in eschatology, the study of end times. And we know that it happens during the period called the latter days, the last days, which is the period of time which we call the tribulation, the seven last years of human rule on earth, which means it will happen at some point during the revelation narrative. However, since it is not explicit in Revelation when this happens, there's a lot of speculation about when it occurs. So since it does occur during this time, it's we, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it and, and at least spend a little bit of time talking about it. So I only want to do this in one episode, even though this is a lot of material to cover, because it's not Revelation. This is a study of Revelation, not a study of Ezekiel. But we need to kind of examine this and see where it fits, because it's going to happen at some point during the revelation time period during these seven last years of human history or perhaps beyond and we'll 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 see how that goes so i'm not going to read all the verses of 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 ezekiel 38 and 39 that would take too long i'll read a few verses and then i'll kind of paraphrase everything else so you understand the narrative and then we'll kind of dive into what it means and what the theories are about when this occurs and why it occurs and and then give you my thoughts All right, so let's dive in. I'm going to read the first uh, maybe 11, 12 verses of chapter 38, and then I'll go into chapter 39 a little bit. All right, so chapter 38 of Ezekiel, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north, and all its troops, many people with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your company that are gathered about you, and be guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter days you will come back into the land whose, of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops, many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and booty, to to stretch out your hand against the waste place that are gathered again inhabited, and against the people gathered from all the nations who have acquired livestock and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. Okay, and that's 
a bit of Revelation, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 38. Here's a bit from 39, which is very similar, uh, the next chapter. And I'll read the first um, few verses of that. Uh, uh, 39 verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O God, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and people who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and those who live securely in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel and will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Okay, so that's through verse 7. Oh, and then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Okay, that's 39 verses 1 through 7. All right, so that's what's happening. So in, in these two um, sections, which, again, are both very similar, so much so that people consider them to be the same event. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. You have a person, an entity called Gog of the, a land called Magog. This is consistent in both of the chapters. And this person or, or this nation leads a, of another coalition of nations against Israel. And some of those nations we know, some of them we aren't sure of. We can, we'll talk about it in a bit. So he's a, he's a prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Um, and, and they come down, it says, with a splendidly clothed army, which meaning this basically an army with the height of whatever their technology is at the time of this invasion. Um, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them. So we know those lands. Uh, Persia is Iran, current Iran. Ethiopia is not the same as Ethiopia today. Ethiopia back during the time of Ezekiel was much, much larger. It was essentially East Africa. So you have um, Iran or Persia, East Africa, Libya, which is pretty much Northern Africa, uh, Gomer, which is technically Turkey, if you look at where the the you know, God is calling these nations out, and they don't necessarily correspond to the nations today because we've changed the names so many times. So when God speaks of nations, He's speaking of the family tribes, and the tribe of Gomer is near modern day Turkey. Of uh, the House of Togarma is actually Armenia. Um, Armenians today refer to themselves as the House of Togarma. So we're talking about a region um, above the Aegean Sea. And they come against Israel. All right. And why are they coming against Israel? Where it says pretty clearly from what I just read that they're coming to plunder. They're coming for goods, for stuff, for uh, for spoil, for for booty, <laughs> not in the vernacular of a, of a person's rear end, but basically treasure. They're coming for stuff. Israel has a bunch of stuff. And it also says that Israel is at peace. They are securely at peace. It says they are, they're a land of unwalled villages, meaning they, they don't have any defenses. And they are prosperous. So this is a time when Israel is prosperous, peaceful, so much so that they don't even have any any defenses. And it's a land that was long desolate, but has now been brought back. And I think that equates to modern Israel. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. So what happens when they come um, against Israel? Well, God is basically going to kick the, the tar out of them. Um, but first, it, it's it, a part I didn't cover um, in going back to Ezekiel um, 38. Verse 13, it says that when this when this invasion is happening, it says Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, Tarshish, and all the young, young young lions will say, Have you come to take plunder? Have you come to, have you gathered an army to take booty, to take away silver and gold and livestock and so forth and so on? So Sheba and Dedan, 
again, talking about tribes, those are the tribes that migrated into Saudi Arabia. So you have Saudi Arabia and Tarshish. Tarshish is generally considered to be um, Spain. Uh, Spain was the furthest um, area to the west uh, that was known to have civilization during the time of Ezekiel. And um, so it can actually be said to represent Europe because at this time, you know, Europe wasn't civilized. They were, they were just, you know, tribal folks in the uh, far north in Scandinavian area and even in the where areas we now know as now know as France and Germany and Estonia and Belgium and all these places they were they weren't civilized. Spain was the furthest civilized area. So when you say Tarshish and all its young lions, meaning all of its descendants, that could basically mean uh, Europe or possibly even America because the Americas were colonized by the Europeans. And they're not involved in this fight. They're just kind of standing far off, questioning it, saying, "Hey, what are you guys doing? You guys, have, are you coming to invade Israel to get all to get all their stuff?" So how will God respond? It says that if we go down to uh, verse 18, it basically says God is just going to be, for lack of a better term, excuse my language, he's going to be pissed off. It says the fury will come into his face and he will defeat these armies in a few ways. He, it will, he will sow confusion among them. As I read before, he said, will knock the bow out of their right hand and the arrow out of their left. And this doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be fighting with bows and arrows. It basically means launcher and it can mean launcher and missile. So, again, we can modernize this if we want to. He's going to basically make their weapons defunct. And it, it says also later in these verses that um, every man's sword will be against his brother's sword. He, so God's going to sow confusion among them. Then it says he's going to rain fire on them. He's going to bring down holy fire upon them. And he's going to use the beasts of the field are going to eat them. And so will, and birds of the air will eat their flesh. So God is just going to thoroughly, thoroughly destroy them this way. And why does God do this? It says clearly so that Israel and the nations will know that he is God. That is the whole reason for this. The reason for the invasion is for them to take plunder and to take material goods and take stuff from Israel. God will come and just completely just kick the tar out of them so that the nation supernaturally so that the nations and Israel will know that he is God, meaning that before this, they don't fully know that he is God. They haven't fully accepted him, either Israel or the nations. And it also says in, in Ezekiel 39, he gives more details about what's going to happen in the aftermath. It says that um, the people that after this thorough, thorough defeat, that Israel will burn their weapons for fuel, the weapons of their enemies for fuel for seven years. And it says it will take them seven months just to bury the dead of all the people who were killed by Jehovah, by God in this, um, in this war. And yeah, so that, that's it in a nutshell. All right. What does this all mean? There are essentially three major theories about what's happening here. And more importantly, when it's going to happen before we get to those, let's just eliminate a couple of the other theories that I think are, are far outside of, of, of reality and facts and history. And as far as when this occurs, that's really the most important thing we, which we want to talk about. Again, I believe it occurs during the revelation scenario, but there are those who believe that it has happened already. Um, some have tried to equate it to other ancient battles in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, none of those battles really correspond to what's happening here. And again, it, it's clearly said in the Bible that this is going to happen in the latter days. So the latter days are the last days, the time of Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord. And that is the period we call the tribulation. Now, there are those like the preterists who see the latter days and these events as happening in 70 AD. 
preterists try to cram everything in the book of Revelation up until basically the great white throne of judgment into um, in, into uh, the invasion of Israel by the Romans in 70 AD when they completely destroyed Israel. So according in their theology, everything has to fit into 70 AD, including Ezekiel 38 and 39, but it just, it simply doesn't. This is a coalition of nations that invade Israel in Ezekiel, and there's only one nation involved in 70 AD. That's um, that that's Rome. Only Rome is invading Israel, not Ethiopia, not Persia, not Gog or Magog, wherever that is, and we'll talk about that in a bit. So that doesn't fit. And Romans weren't coming to take plunder from Israel. I mean, they did take you know a lot of their goods, but that's, that wasn't their reason. Their reason was just to wipe Israel off the map. And you know, and and the Romans weren't defeated. The Romans won. So in Ezekiel thirty eight and thirty nine, God wins supernaturally. Well, Rome won in seventy A.D. and drove the Jews out of Israel for almost two thousand years. So that that's not really a victory. It doesn't fit. I mean, I can go into more detail, but basically, almost every aspect of of the Gog Magog War is completely uh, completely contradicts what the Preterists believe happened in seventy A.D. So I'm not even going to waste any more time on that. This has not happened yet. There is no historical record of these this event art happening, which means it's going to happen in the future. And it's going to happen in the last days, the latter days, the period of time that we call the, the tribulation. The problem is that Revelation isn't really explicit about when this event occurs in this scenario. Revelation doesn't really speak clearly. So there's again, there's a lot of speculation, a lot of theories. And there are three primary theories that we're going to explore. And um, kind of like the the um, the rapture, they kind of fall into those three categories. They're kind of uh, pre, mid, and post, um, more or less. There, there's a pre-tribulation ish um, God Magog war. There's kind of a post-tribulation or, or um, end of tribulation, and then there's one that goes stretches even beyond that towards the millennium. So let's talk about all three. The first one, and this is this person is very popular with people who are also pre-trib and pre-millennial. And this is the idea that the Gog-Magog war happens very soon, very close to the beginning of the seven-year period called the Tribulation, which is, which is kicked off by this covenant or treaty that some people say that the Antichrist, the beast, establishes with Israel. So it either happens right before that or immediately after that. And I'll give you those reasons in a second. And, and this is... Um, a theory that is, again, believed by a lot of the prominent uh, uh, pre-tribulation rapture types and premillennial types like, you know, my old mentor, Chuck Missler, um, by um, Jack Van Impey, who I also believe has passed away. I, I don't know for sure, but he's he was he was old when I was a kid. So I'm guessing he's probably not with us anymore. Uh, David Jeremiah believes this. Uh, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins believe it. They, they uh, chronicled it in their or they chronicled their theory about it in their Left Behind series, which, which was very popular, what, 20 some odd years ago. So, yeah, a lot of the most popular Bible teachers believe that this happens either right before the tribulation or, or right immediately after the tribulation. And when you read what they say or you listen to them, they refer to this invasion as a Russian led invasion. They call it a Russian coalition, the Gog Magog War. Why? Why do they think it's Russia that's leading this? Why do they think that Gog and Magog is is, is some type of, of Russian-led federation? Well, the primary reason, which you heard when I read the the first parts of um, Ezekiel 30 and 39, is that this enemy comes from the far north or the uttermost north. 
So geographically speaking, if you look at a map and you put your finger on Israel, Jerusalem, and you go directly north, well, you're going to run right into Russia. Actually, you're going to probably literally run into Moscow. And that is the furthest north northern country. Um, uh, and they're from Israel. And in our contemporary sense, they're very powerful. Russia is, is, is a, a superpower militarily and economically at this present time and has been for the last you know, 50, 60, um, 70 years. So which, which you know, puts in a very contemporary period of time or a contemporary context, rather. And, you know, and most of these Bible scholars believe that we are close to the end times. And I, have, and I believe that myself, which, again, we could be wrong. I mean, the Apostle Paul thought he lived in the end times, and that was 2,000 years ago. So we could all be wrong about this. I mean, this may not happen for another 50, 100, 200, 500 years. I mean, I don't think so. But again, we could be wrong. But this period, but this uh, this theory is, is of it being a Russian coalition is is very contextualized in our modern age. That doesn't make it right or wrong. I just want to uh, let you know that. So that's one reason. Another reason that they believe that this is a Russian coalition is because of some of the other nations involved. Uh, Persia, which is again Iran, Libya, which we all know is also known as, as Northern Africa, they are currently in alliance with Russia. They have a mutual aggression policy. So basically, if you attack one, you attack the other. If someone attacks uh, Iran, then Russia is is obligated by treaty to defend them. It's the same thing with uh, nations in um, the some nations in Northern Africa, such as Libya. They have some of the same uh, military contracts with each other, and, and as as with Syria, Syria has one of those with Iran. And so, and and uh, Turkey, which is uh, Gomer, and you could you could also argue that Meshach is also a um, an area in Turkey that is getting closer to Russia currently in in, um, in military treaties. So, and another reason is that some people say that Meshach sounds like Moscow. Meshach, Moscow. Okay, that sounds similar. I'll give you that. I mean, okay, stay with me. I, I know that's, that's a little out there, but we'll, we'll explain it in a minute. And also you have the Gog is called the Prince of Rosh. Uh, Jack Van Impey, who was, was always quick to say that, you know, Rosh uh, sounds a lot like Russia. Rosh, Russia. Okay, yeah, I, I suppose that's true. They, they do sound similar. So with all that evidence, it's assumed this is going to be a Russian-led coalition against Israel. Again, you know, Russia and Israel do not have a good relationship. They, there's some hostility there. So I guess it makes sense from a geopolitical standpoint there. Um, the other reason that, so, so the reason for it is, is to come down and take plunder. So Israel is rich and at peace. Well, they're not at peace right now. They are wealth, wealthy. They're, they're one of the richer first world nations in, in the world. Um, but what is it about them that, that makes you think that you want to, that anyone would want to invade them for what their riches? Probably nothing now, but there's speculation that something could happen that would uh, lead nations to want to invade them. For example, there's a theory that there is oil in northern Israel. Um, I've heard that theory since the 90s, and there's been exploration going on for a couple, three decades, um, you know, trying to see if there is oil in northern Israel, and it's speculated that there could be more oil in that area than it is in Saudi Arabia. And if that happened, Israel would suddenly become quite possibly the richest per capita nation on earth. And that would certainly disrupt the Middle Eastern oil uh, hegemony, especially with Iran, which, which relies heavily on their oil. And that could you know, definitely spark their interest in taking those oil fields back from Israel. But again, that's speculation. Um, but other than that, uh, I can't think of any other reason why they'd want to invade them for their plunder. But, you know, 
We'll see. I mean, there's you know, in in, in the Left Behind series by uh, Tim LaHaye, they speculate on some other on some other reasons, like the the fact that you know Israel is, is has a lot of agriculture and things like that. But you know, but they they're that's part of the reason that they say the invasion is going to happen. Another significant thing is that it says that Israel is at peace. Um, unwalled villages; they're not defending themselves. Well, that doesn't really make sense right now because. Israel has been on high alert since the moment they became a nation. I mean, they were invaded immediately after they were declared a nation in 1948, and they've been under constant military threat since then. However, remember that the thing that starts the tribulation is not the rapture or anything else um, that God does. The thing that starts the tribulation, that seven-year time period, is the covenant that the Antichrist, the beast, confirms with Israel. And if that treaty, if that covenant involves a, 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 if it is a peace treaty, which many people who take this tact about the, the God may God war, God may God war believe that it's a peace treaty, then that means that they that the Antichrist has brokered a peace with their, the surrounding Middle Eastern nations, which would include the ability or the right for Israel to rebuild their temple. Now that peace could be what sparks that peace in that temple being built on what the Muslims also consider sacred land could be the spark that would um, give Iran the impetus to attack Israel and then Russia would be dragged into it. Now I say dragged and I really mean that because when you look at what these these verses says, it says that God is going to put hooks in the jaw of Gog and Magog and if Gog and Magog are Russia, then that means they're putting hooks into their mouths and dragging them down means that it's reluctant. They don't really want to do it, but they're kind of obligated to do it. And again, as I said, there's mutual aggression pacts with Russia between Russia and Iran. So if Iran were to attack Israel and Israel would try to start to defend themselves, well, Russia would have to, by treaty, also come on the side of, of, of Iran, Persia, and which probably drag some other nations into it. And, and then that would kind of, that would spark this war and um, and then God would come would come down and you know strike them, defeat them, rain fire on them, have the beasts of the earth defeat them and devour them, and you know cause confusion and all that stuff. And and by this by him doing this supernaturally by su by supernaturally defeating this great horde of enemies, Israel, which is secular right now, uh, they would suddenly realize, oh, oh, we the God of our Bible is real and He is protecting us, and th and they will know that He is God. Again, that was, that's God's purpose in doing this, so that Israel and the nations will know that he is God. Okay, so sounds good, but there are some problems with this. One of the biggest problems of the Russian coalition aspect of it is that it's not really a ton of evidence that God, Magog, is Russia. There, there's very little. I mean, the main two are number, the main thing is that it's from the furthest, is, is uttermost north. And yes, Russia is the furthest north from Israel, but is that what uttermost north means? Keep in mind that when Ezekiel wrote this, Russia didn't exist as a nation. There was nothing happening in Russia. Russia was just a, you know, some primitive tribal people, just like the rest of Europe. The uttermost north, if you were to, to ask someone during the time of Ezekiel, and incidentally, I mean, give you a little history. Uh, Ezekiel wrote this. He lived during the time of the Babylonian captivity. He was a contemporary of the prophet Daniel. Daniel was the prophet to the southern part of the empire, Babylon proper, where the two southern tribes had been taken 
to, and um, Ezekiel was the prophet to the northern part of the Babylonian Empire, which was once Assyria before it was conquered by the Babylonians. And that's where the 10 northern tribes um, uh, dwelt. So he was kind of the, the he was the ambassador, the, the not the ambassador, excuse me, the prophet to the northern tribes. So all 12 tribes were in, the, in, in Babylon, which again, it's one of the many things that destroys the, the ridiculous 10 lost tribes theory, because those tribes were never lost. They were all together in Babylon, in Babylon. When Persia took over Babylon, they were all together in Persia. And then when Persian, when the Persian um, uh, King Cyrus allowed is allowed Israel to go back to their land, all 12 tribes are allowed to go back to Israel. All 12 tribes went back to what, you know, a, a remnant of all 12 tribes went back to Israel and all 12 tribes were still together 300 years later during the day of Pentecost. Um, that's, that's said explicitly in the book of Acts. There are no 10 lost tribes. It's nonsense. So back to back to the narrative here. During the time of Ezekiel, the furthest north would have been Asia Minor, Turkey. No one even knew that Russia existed. It, it didn't. So, I, so there's that. And there's also the idea that Gog is a person in the land of Magog is unknown. We don't know where Magog is. But we do know that Gog is an individual, and there is reason to believe that Gog is not a human being. We'll talk about that when we get to the third theory, because the third theory has Gog living a thousand years after the events of, 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 the, of the tribulation. So no human being is going to live that long. The other thing to keep in mind is that when we talk about the uttermost north, we have to remember that we live in two realms or we exist in two realms, the material realm and the spiritual realm. Yes, in the material realm, sure, all the way north is Russia. But are we talking about an actual physical uttermost north? Or are we talking about the spiritual north? Because in the in in the spiritual sense, uttermost north is an idiom for a in spiritual cosmology of a place of a spiritual place of evil. The uttermost north in the in the hearts and minds of an of, of an ancient Israelite would mean the place, the mountain to the north where evil Elohim, evil angels descended, that would be Mount Bashan or Mount Hermon. This is the mountain where the 200 angels or Elohim descended in the time during the time of, the, of, of Noah, the antediluvian period, and cohabitated with women and created the Nephilim, which caused the flood. So the uttermost north is Mount Bashan, and it's a spiritual designation, and the south would be Mount Zion, which was a mount of God. So when, when you talk about the uttermost north through the eyes of someone with a, with the supernatural worldview, which I have, which we talk about on, on faithbyreason.net, there is a, a section on the supernatural worldview. We are talking about a spiritual north, and that would make Gog a spiritual being, a spiritual entity. And so I, I don't think it's Russia. I don't think there's any reason to really believe it's Russia. The other reasons don't make sense. Yes, Meshach says it sound a little bit like Moscow. Sure, but so what? That's poor philology. Two words don't mean the same thing because they sound similar. Yes, Meshach sounds a little bit like Moscow. Rosh sounds a little bit, bit like Russia. But just because things sound the same doesn't mean they are the same. Uh, for example, the word gum, G-U-M, sounds similar to gun, G-U-N. But they're very, very different words, very, very different products. If I put a stick of gum in my mouth, that has a completely different con context and concept than if I put a gun, G-U-N, into my mouth. Just because they sound similar doesn't mean they're the same. I think you're really stretching it when you try to do that. 
So I don't think this is Russia at all. Russia didn't even exist then. It wouldn't have, it would have made no sense to an ancient Israelite who Ezekiel was talking to. I think the spiritual aspect makes much more sense. Secondly, it talks about the Russia, I'm sorry, the Israel as a land of unbald villages. Yeah, but even so, even if the Antichrist makes this peace treaty, does that mean Israel is just going to completely drop all of their military and dwell securely and at peace? I don't think so. The Middle Eastern nations aren't the only areas that are a threat to Israel. I don't believe that they're suddenly going to drop all their military and be completely and be voluntarily defenseless. Now, it's possible, but I think it's extremely unlikely. So there's there's some problems with it. I mean, there there are some areas that, that lead, you, lead you to believe that this would, would be a pre-tribulation uh, or, or immediately after tribulation event. But, you know, there are some questions about it. I mean, another thing in its favor is uh, the, the, the idea that uh, for seven years, they're going to burn weapons for fuel. And um, it... If we're talking about a nuclear conflict, which would be in our modern times, yeah, you could absolutely take, because it says that, you know, God's going to basically diffuse their weapons. He's going to knock the arrow out of their right hand and a bow out of their left or vice versa. And if we're talking about, you know, launchers and missiles, then maybe, you know, there's a nuclear strike and the bombs don't go off. So if you have like, you know, undetonated nuclear missiles, well, you got plutonium and uranium. You could use those. You know, Israel has nuclear power plants. You could use those for seven years to burn fuel. That's very possible. Because when it says that, you know, God rains down fire upon them, a lot of the commentators believe that, you know, that's nuclear fire. But, you know, the problem with that is that I don't think God's going to send nuclear bombs on people. I don't think God's sitting in heaven with an arsenal of nuclear weapons. I think this is going to be supernatural on God's part. So there's some reasons to um, believe that scenario, and there are some reasons to doubt it. Okay, let's move on to the next possible scenario, which is that this uh, the Gog Magog war happens at the end of the tribulation. That is, in fact, that it, it is in fact part of the Armageddon scenario, and this is something that is believed by other very prominent Bible teachers, such as Hal Lindsey, author of the late Great Planet Earth, and the late Michael Heiser, again one of my mentors. He um, he he advocates this this idea as well. And here's what it is: basically, um, the Gog Magog war is a part of the Armageddon scenarios, part and parcel of that final battle, quote unquote, it's not much of a battle. We talked about this in the last episode, but all the nations of the world come against Israel. And the people who, who um, believe this theory believe that the Gog and Magog war is, is a part of this. So why do they believe it? Well, for one, there are, again, many nations coming against Israel in, in Armageddon and in um, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. There are many nations coming against Israel. Also, um, among the ways that God judges these armies are birds eating their flesh. And we see that's what happens at the end of the Armageddon scenario is birds are filled with their flesh. So this would make Gog, the Antichrist, and Magog, the uh, Antichrist kingdom. And um, in, after the uh, the end of the, the bowl judgment, I think when the sixth bowl was poured out, I'm sorry, the fifth or sixth bowl, forgive me on, on which, but um, you know, three, un- yeah, it's, it's the sixth judgment. Three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon, and they go around the nations performing signs to get to gather them together. So this may be the equivalent of them being drawn into this conflict. So it, it makes sense from that point because you, know, you have, in, it's in Revelation, it is a national coalition coming against Israel. 
the birds are filled with their flesh. So they have those things in common. But there are a, a few areas where there is some uh, con conflicts, if not contradictions. One of them is the motivation. It's very clear in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 that the motivation for this invasion is plunder. They want stuff. They are after the riches, the wealth that Israel has accumulated. Armageddon is not about that. At the point of Armageddon, it's not only is the Armageddon invasion of Israel not about wealth, no one even cares about wealth at this point. Remember from you know the, the last couple episodes, the earth is devastated at this point. All the water, fresh and salt, salt water is turned to blood. Uh, you have you know um, hundred pound hailstones destroying everything. You had earthquakes, an earthquake that just basically destroyed everything. There's no more buildings. There's no more fresh water. There's no more food. You people are have they have these boils all over them. They're they're you know miserable. And at this point, who cares about gold and silver when you can't even get a drink of water? So that that is a serious conflict it's not a straight out contradiction they're not coming for plunder they are coming to invade israel to kill the jews so they can't call on jesus and also to repeat the babel scenario where they are trying to you know build a gateway to invade heaven so that that's a serious difference another conflict is the way they are judged yes part of the judgment is the birds eating their flesh which again both the armageddon scenario and ezekiel's in Ezekiel chapters 30 and 39 agree with it also says that God sends down fire that kills everyone and that's in Ezekiel 30 and 39 but in the Armageddon scenario they're killed by the sword that comes out of Jesus's mouth which is basically an idiom for the word of God so Jesus speaks and he defeats them so there's no fire from heaven or from God coming down in a scenario so that's a difference um you know not a huge one I mean, it could be both. It could be, you know, the Jesus speaking and fire coming down, but that's not mentioned in the Armageddon scenario. And finally, there's the the idea that uh, the Jews will burn their um, the weapons of war for seven years. Well, right after Armageddon is the millennium, and I I don't think they'd be needing to burn weapons for seven years. Maybe they will. I mean, we don't really know how. How, how long it takes the earth to recover in the millennial period. We'll talk about that more in the next episode, but I, I kind of question if there's, there's, there's going to be that need once the kingdom is, is established and Jesus is ruling. Is Jesus going to say, hey, you know, can you burn some weapons for us for, for seven years while we get things set up? Yeah, not a strong dispute, but, you know, it, it, it needs to be there. And the last is God's purpose for the Gog-Magog war. It, it explicitly says that it's, it's for Israel and the nations to know that he is God. At this point, they know already. The nations know who God is. Israel knows who God is. I, I, I don't think that they need the Armageddon scenario to realize, oh my God, oh goodness, there's a God. Oh no, there's been so many supernatural things happening that they already know. So that doesn't seem to be a strong uh, reason for it. And there, there's a conflict there. But you know, there are some strong reasons to believe it. All right, the third scenario, the third theory is that the Gog-Magog war actually happens at the end of the millennium, a thousand years. And yes, it is a literal thousand years. We'll talk about that more in the, in the next episode when we go over the millennial period. So basically, the, at, at the thousand, when the thousand years are over, Jesus in the thousand years, Jesus reigns over the earth and he establishes peace by force. You know, there, even though the millennial period is a time of peace and prosperity, it says that Jesus rules with a rod of iron. That rod of iron 
is not just a scepter that he walks around. It's not a walking stick. A scepter for a king is something that he used to execute capital punishment. The king's rod, his staff, his his scepter was to beat people over the head with or over their entire bodies with as punishment. So Jesus is going to be ruling um, with, with that rod of iron, meaning that there are going to be some people on earth who will not who will chafe under the rule of Jesus. And at the end of the millennium, it's, well, Satan is, 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 um, is chained up, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this in detail. But basically, the millennium starts, Satan, the devil, the, the Nahash of old, the serpent, the dragon, is chained and thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And then during that thousand years, Jesus reigns. After that thousand years, the Satan is released, and he goes out and he deceives the nations, and they gather together against Israel. In fact, let me just uh, even though I'm getting ahead of myself, let me just read that verse because it's very significant and why this might be a part of the God may God scenario. So uh, Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So, and then, you know, and then after that, um, Satan is, is cast into the lake of fire and he's, he's done. That's the, that's Satan's last stand. So there's really some strong reasons to believe that this could be the Gog Magog scenario. The strongest is that Gog and Magog are named here. This is the only other place in the Bible, aside from Ezekiel, where we see the names Gog and Magog. Uh, so it's it's pretty explicit. It says that Satan will, will go out and deceive the nations. So this could be how the nations are drawn in. Gog and Magog um, are, you know, if, if Gog is another spiritual entity and Magog is, is Aries, so maybe it means that not only is Satan imprisoned in the bottomless pit, but apparently some other um, uh, fallen Elohim, fallen angelic beings are, are, are there as well. And Satan goes out to deceive them and he brings them all together to the battle. And they are gathered in Jerusalem. They surround Jerusalem, the beloved city. And at this point, keep in mind that it says it describes Israel and Jerusalem as a land of unwalled villages at perfect peace. Well, that actually makes sense. If you've had a thousand years of Jesus ruling from Jerusalem, it would totally be a time of, of they wouldn't need any kind of defense. Jesus is ruling the world. What do they need defense for? What do they need armies for? So this is probably the most clear um, example or, 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 or the clearest realization of these unwalled villages. No other time in Israel's history could you say that they were at perfect peace. This will be the time when they are perfect perfect peace because it's the capital of the world and Jesus himself is ruling. So yeah, it'll be a land of unwalled villages. Would they have wealth? Sure they would. Why wouldn't they? It'll be a time of, of great prosperity, again, which we'll start talking about in the next episode, but it'll be a time of great, great prosperity. And so you have Gog Magog. You have Israel as an unwalled village. You have Israel... It with great prosperity because it's where the king is. Jesus will reign from the seat of David in Jerusalem. You have nations coming against them when when the devil is released from his his um, his incarceration, and you have the judgments the same. You have the judgment that a fire from from God that devours them. So this seems pretty strong, but just like the other scenarios, there are some issues. One of the issues is. 
again, the motivation. Are they are the nations of the world coming to take Israel's wealth? Maybe it's not clear here. It seems just to be a rebellion to try to destroy them. But, you know, I guess it's possible they, they want their stuff, too. Um, another issue is that the reason that God sends the fire and judges them is that is so that nations will know that he is God. Yeah, again, just like the Armageddon scenario, or even more so, these, they know he's God. Jesus has been reigning for a thousand years. I don't think anyone will have on the earth. I'm not sure if there's a God. I, I know his son is like, who's been ruling us, has been ruling us for thousands of years, for 8,000 years rather. And I know that, you know, you have all these uh, supernatural beings, which would be, you know, Christians at the time, people who, and people who have died in, in Christ and died believers who, who will come back and they will rule and reign with Jesus again. Getting ahead of myself, we'll talk about that more in the next episode. So they're, they're, I don't think they'll, they'll have any doubts that God exists. I don't think God would need to prove himself. So that's a big one. And also the aspect of having to uh, you know, burn these weapons for fuel for seven years, that doesn't make any sense at all because right after the millennium and Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire, the next event is the great white throne judgment and then you know the heaven, the new Jerusalem. So they, and heaven and earth will, earth will pass away immediately after this. So there's no need to have seven years of, of, of fuel being used up. Um, from these, uh, from the weapons of war. And again, also, why would there be weapons of war? Jesus has been ruling the world for a thousand years. Who, I don't think they'd be building armies in secret. Uh, so anyway, um, those are the three scenarios, the three theories that, that, are, that people have. So which one do I subscribe to? The short answer is, well, which one do I think is correct? The short, 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 yeah. <laughs> Sorry. the short answer is, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. As you've seen, all of them have their pluses and their minuses, and none of them are completely compelling. None of them are without serious conflicts, if not contradictions. So none of these fits cleanly into the Ezekiel 38 and 39 scenario. So what do we do with this? I mean, I don't mean to cop out or, or but I mean, I, I truly don't know. And if I said at the beginning of this series, if I don't know something, I'm just going to say, I don't know. And I really don't know. I grew up most of my life believing in the first scenario uh, that it would be right before the tribulation or right at the beginning of the tribulation. But again, there's some serious doubts there. Um, same thing with the, with the Armageddon scenario. There's some serious issues. And even with the post-millennial uh, um, a scenario there, there's there's problems. So what can we do with this? Well, remember when we have conflicts with biblical passages that we know are true, we know the Bible is true, we know that there, things are going to happen, but if nothing fits cleanly and if there seem to be multiple possibilities, then we go to our theory of multiple resolutions. That if the Bible speaks about events that seem to happen at different times and they're described differently, but we, we, we know they must both be true or they, or, or, or they must all be true, then that must mean that maybe there's more than one scenario. Maybe there is more than one Gog-Magog scenario. Remember, this is two chapters. Chapters eight, chapter 38 and 39 are very similar, but they're not exactly the same. There are some differences. So it could. So the, the common belief is that they're just that chapter thirty nine is just a reiteration of chapter thirty eight, which is possible, and I, I tend to believe that. But it's possible that Ezekiel chapter thirty eight and thirty nine are two completely different scenarios, two completely different events. 
And if that's the case, then maybe they fit into two of these different scenarios. Which ones fit where? I, I don't know. I, I truly don't. None of them really fit cleanly. So, but, so maybe there will be one before and one after. I mean, I'm sorry. And by that, I mean, maybe there will be a pre-tribulation Gog Magog event. And maybe there will be a, 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 a an Armageddon scenario. Or, and maybe there will also be, there's obviously a Gog and Magog scenario at the millennium. Maybe it's one of these two. 38 or 30, Ezekiel 38 or 39, maybe it's a different one. Maybe it's all three. So I know that it's, that's not terribly helpful because I'm not telling you anything definitive because I, I really don't know. What I'm just doing right now is giving you the information, giving you the pluses and the minuses, the uh, pros and cons of each one of these theories. And maybe you have a better one. If you have a, a, a scenario that fits more cleanly with the Gog Magog chapters in Ezekiel, please let me know in the comments. I'd love to hear it because I'm, I'm, I don't know. I just want to present it to you, give you all the information, and then it's up to you to decide. All right, so we are at 45 minutes, so I want to wrap this up. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, please uh, subscribe to Faith by Reason on the YouTube channel or any other video channel you might be listening to this on. Or better yet, my preference is to subscribe on faithbyreason.net. Just go to the right navigation area and put in your email. And next time we will, we're getting to the, into the home stretch. We only have a, three more major events. We have the millennium, then we have the great right, white throne judgment, and then we have the end, we have eternity, we have heaven, we have, or more, more accurately, the new Jerusalem. And then we're gonna wrap this up. So in the next episode, we are going to talk about the millennium. It'll probably be a two episode series. We'll get into the controversy and interestingly, the main controversy about the millennium comes from Christians. You would think there wouldn't be anything controversial with Christians about the idea of Jesus ruling um, and reigning for a thousand years. Yet there is there's some very interesting controversies there. We talked about them in the very, I think, the maybe second or third episode of the Revelation series. But we'll reiterate them and we'll talk about what the millennium means in the next episode. And then we'll we'll talk about how it plays out and how it fits into the quote unquote dispensational model. Um, in the episode following and then after that we get to it's judgment and then it's the new heaven and a new earth and then we're done with revelation all right um yeah again thank you for listening i appreciate it and i will talk to you next time